0: Chapter Twenty Nine of the Gray Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeremiah Sutherland, Victoria, British Columbia. The Gray Man by S. R. Crockett. Chapter Twenty Nine The Murder Among the Sand Hills. It was a broad day and a pleasant May morn when my master and I said our farewells at the gate of Culane. With my own hands I had saddled for Sir Thomas his war-horse, but he, coming down arrayed in his plain suit of dark Flemish cloth, bade me take him back to the stable, and get instead a pacing palfrey, which he loved because Marjorie had used to ride it. Then he kissed his bairns, for the lads and Nell stood by the door on the landward side, watching us with earnest eyes. "'Keep the castle, James,' he cried, till I come back. "'Aye,' said Sandy, "'we will keep it for you, father." for Sandy came ever to the forefront, setting himself naturally before the slow and quiet Jamie. Then Nell came near and kissed her father, but she and I only looked the one at the other as friends look, for at least before folk we did not so much as touch hands. So down through the woods Sir Thomas and I went sedately and quietly, now into little-collar blinks of morning sunshine, which glinted straight and level between the trees, and anon coming out upon a bare knoll as into a room with a removed and spacious ceiling. For there at our feet was the plain of the sea, sparkling and blue, beyond it again the hills of Erin, and to the south the shoulder of the craig of Elsa, heaving its bulk skyward like a monster of the ocean stranded in the shoreward's shallows. Very pleasant was my master's discourse as we went. Of the wonderful peace that he was going to bring upon the land of Carrick from his dealings with the king and council in Edinburgh. Specially he spoke with thankfulness of the present friendship of Auchendrayne, of the young Bargany who should for long be under tutors and governors, and of our own earl, now tired of the feud and eager for a lasting peace. It needs, said he, but that one should take on him all the burden and heat of the day, and carry the matter through. And I, that am no warrior, but a quiet man dwelling in my own house, and fit only for donnering about mine own fields, may be able to do more in the matter than many battalions. For I have some influence with the king, a man that loves grave discourse upon occasion. So pleasantly talking together in this fashion, speaking ever the kindliest things of the enemies of his house, and all the time making many excuses for them, Sir Thomas kept his palfrey at the amble. Presently we came to the castle of Greenan, which stands on a sea crag, and looks right bravely over the bay of air, and down upon the little tower thereof. It belongs to Kennedy of Balterson, a gossip and well-wisher of Kulain's. Now, said my master, I must see if Balterson is at home. I think truly that he is, for there is a reek coming up very freely from the loom. Now John was ever a big eater, and a long liar abed in the mornings. What a pleasantry if I should raise him from between the blankets. It would be a great cast-up all the days of his life. So we lighted down in front of the castle yet. I tied the horses together and walked about the cliff edge, looking out to sea and over the sands of air, thinking of many things. Mostly my thoughts ran on the treasure of Kelwood and whether I should ever win it. Of Nell, too, and what she meant by patting me on the cheek when we met my mother. Of the tutor's words to my father that one day I should have a handle to my name and a down-sitting as good as any. Plenty of pleasant things I had to think about that collar morn in May, as indeed a young man of spirit ought to have. And it was not very long before Sir Thomas came forth arm-in-arm arm with John Kennedy of Balterson, a grave and portentous man of heavy figure, richly arrayed, more like the provost of a town than a country laird. And these two paced up and down the narrow terrace walk of Green and Castle, turning and returning, wheeling and countering as on the quarter-deck of a ship but of the matter of their discourse I know nothing, though I guessed it to have been concerning the making up of peace between the feudal enemies in the lands of Carrick and Kyle. It was near to ten of the clock, and already close upon the time which had been appointed for the tryst with Auchendrayne. that we mounted at the Yet of Greenan to ride on our way to Holmston Ford. Sorry am I, said my master, that I have not spoken a word with John Muir ere I go, but I know his loving desire for my success, and he well knows my affection for him. We rode down from the castle crag of Greenan, and presently came out upon the links. These are here all sandy, cast up into rounded mounds and hills, and bitten into by the little pits and dungeons, called of them that play at the golf, bunkers. Lancelot, ride right a little way in front. It approaches the hour of noon, and I would do my devotion and meditate a little alone, said Sir Thomas to me. So I drew myself a bowshot before him, riding upon Dom Nicholas, and taking my hat in my hand, I rode easily, enjoying the sea breeze that cooled my brow and tossed my hair. I wondered if ever the time would come when I also should be thinking about my religion at noon of a fine, heartsome day. It seemed a strange time enough for a hale, well-to-do gentleman to set to his prayers. Presently I saw a man standing upon my right hand, somewhat above me upon the crown of a sandhill, and he raised his hand as one that cried to clear the course in the game, so I thought no more of the matter. But I looked round, thinking perchance that he cried to my master, who was riding with bared head and holding his little red testament in his hand. Suddenly, even as I looked at him, I heard the sound of shots behind me, and turning Dom Nicholas, I saw my master reel in the saddle, with white blowing puffs of gunpowder rising all about him from behind the desolate sand hills among which the murderers had hidden themselves. Drawing my sword, I set spurs to the sides of Dom Nicholas and galloped towards them. I was aware, as I rode, of my master lying on his back on the sand, and his palfrey galloping away with streaming mane. A little black crowd of men stood and knelt about him, and I saw the flash of steel again and again as one and another of them lifted a knife and struck. I yelled aloud to them in my agony, and bade them wait till I came. So they hasted to make front against me, some of them leaping on their horses, and others biding a moment to put as it had been booty into their saddle wallets. It was Thomas Kennedy, called the Wolf of Drummurky that withstood me as I came thus furiously upon Dom Nicholas. With him I first crossed swords, while one, James Muir of Auchendrayne held off a little warily, watching to win in at me when I should give him opportunity. With the corner of my eye I saw the same man, whom I had at first observed making the warning signal. He held up his hand as before, then he leaped on a horse which he had by him in a hollow of the sands. He was, as I noted, a tall man, with a hat pulled low over his eyes, and he wore about him the long grey cloak which had been so fatal a sign to us of Cassillis. But ere I could see more I was in the thick of the murderers with my sword. I struck and warded, not knowing what I did, but only striking with the anger of blood in my eye, till I gave Drum Murky a cut on the shoulder, which made him feign to shift his sword-arm. Then I wheeled and attacked Cloncaird as furiously, who was a great mountain of a fellow, red of face and brutal of heart, and I had readily enough done for him too had he been alone, for he was no man of his weapons. But I could see plainly enough three or four others charging pistols and training of hackbutts, making ready to take an aim at me. Whereupon I knew that there was no use of spending my life for naught, So, with my sword red in my hand, I rode over the sand hills straight at the tall man in the grey cloak, but such was the effect of an ill conscience, that he took his mantle about his mouth as one that fears being known, and set spurs to his horse. I had not pursued far when I came to the top of a dune, and saw a little cloud of citizens that played at the clubs beneath me. To them I rode as hard as I could, with the murderer's bullets splattering here and there, and throwing up little spurts of sand about me murder, foul murder, I cried. Come hastily, for the tutor of Cassillus is done to death. One of the citizens held up his hand to me as if to bid me be silent, for it was the putting stroke which his neighbour played, and of its kind difficult, so that men held their breath. But when it was made and the ball holed, they ran to me quickly enough, for alas, murder was so common in those days, that men took little notice, unless he that fell was one who was some kin to themselves. Nevertheless they hasted when I cried who was my master, and who were the villains that beset him. For the players were all burghers of air, and feared that they should underlie the angers of the Earl and of the King, if they gave not ready help when this slaughter was done, as it were at their very gates. Thus very quickly we came to my dear master. He was lying alone on his back, quietly gazing up to the sky, the red blood welling from many ghastly wounds. All his rich plain Flanders clothing was torn and disarranged by the villains who had not disdained to despoil after that they had murdered him. Yet there was some life left in him, and he turned his head, smiling as if thankful, after the hateful faces of his cruel enemies, to gaze at the last upon the countenances of friends. He was, as I thought, past speech, but he looked about him in a certain curious way he had when he had lost something, and being absent-minded, knew not for the moment what. I showed him his empty purse, but it was not that. So I looked round and saw nothing but some discharged pistols lying with broken lingles abroad upon the sand, and the little book he had been reading as his palfrey paced along. So as soon as I showed the latter to him, he put out his hand for it. Then he held it a moment, kissed it, and gave it back to me. Be a good lad, he said quietly and composedly. Fear not for me. I go in friendship with all men. Poor, poor Cloncared, he said, thinking of one of his murderers, whom he had always befriended. It is a pity for his wife and young family. Then he closed his eyes, and we thought he had already passed from us. But presently he opened them again and looked toward me. Be kind to Nelly," he said, smiling so kindly at me that my heart nearly broke. He shook his head at seeing my grief and the tears running down, for indeed I could not withhold them. There is no need, he said reprovingly. No need for the like of that, Ava. Be a brave lad, Launcelot, and just as true to your god as you have proved to me, who have been a loving master to you here below. I am only way for the poor misguided lads that were so far left to themselves as to lay me here like this. And with that there was but his body on the sands, for the spirit of the gentlest master that ever a man served had gone its way to its own master. But it was even as he said, For the end of such an one there is no need of tears, then I stood up, and the terrible thought came in upon me like Solway tide. How? How shall I take him home to Helen Kennedy, to his orphaned bairns, and to the stricken house of Kulain? End of chapter 29